Welcome into the Bama Online Podcast. This one's set to drop on Tuesday morning, January the 4th. 2022. Got to catch myself there. Not 2021, 2022. Travis Ryer with you, senior analyst for BamaOnline.com. We got a lot to get into on the podcast today. You're going to have some Alabama football talk, obviously, as the Crimson Tide Cotton Bowl Classic champs one more time, set to take on the Georgia Bulldogs in a rematch of the SEC championship game. That game coming up next Monday night at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, Indiana. Highs for next Monday in Indy set to be right around 27 degrees. So bundle up if you're making the trip. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the program as well. I'm going to get into some Under Armour All-America game talk with you. Watch some of that over the weekend. Had some thoughts on the Alabama signees that took part in the All-Star game down in Orlando. We'll also give you some Alabama-Florida men's basketball talk as the Crimson Tide and Gators set to get together at Exact Tech. It'll always be the O-Dome to me down in Gainesville, but these days it's known as Exact Tech Arena in Gainesville, Florida. That game, a 6 p.m. Central tip-off Wednesday evening, will air on ESPN2, so we'll get into some of that as well. It's a real newsy Monday we're coming off of. I understand with the transfer portal and coaching news and all those things, Probably not a huge surprise, but um, you did hear from Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, the two head coaches for next Monday night's championship game on Monday. A couple players from the Alabama side of things. You had Will Anderson and also Brian Robinson as your most valuable players for Alabama in that win over Cincinnati at Jerry World last Friday on New Year's Eve. Um Offensive line injuries for Alabama, a big part of the storyline in their early ramp-up for this championship game. Chris Owens, you saw, went out late with a lower extremity injury in the win over the Bearcats. Emil Echior went out fairly early. I believe it was late in the first quarter that Emil was sidelined by apparently a shoulder injury, as it was reported by Nick Saban post-game. So, Emil Echior, Chris Owens, Nick Saban was asked about both players on Monday. Didn't really have an update because Alabama was just getting the practice week or preparation for Georgia underway. We'll know more about that as we move throughout the week. And, of course, no media viewings these days. Thanks to the COVID, so the BamaOnline.com staff, Charlie Potter, not able to get out there and maybe check some things out along that Alabama offensive line. You even had some coaching news related to Alabama on Monday with the carousel at the assistant level. Jay Valai linked with a potential landing spot on Brent Venable, still forming staff out at Oklahoma. Jay Valai, of course, coaches the cornerbacks for Alabama. He's only been here for a season Uh, But he's a Texas guy, and OU undoubtedly looking to beef up its staff in terms of recruiting the neighboring Lone Star State. And I understand Alabama is very important. Texas is very important for Alabama as well. But you have to recruit Texas well if you're Oklahoma. You have to. It's a non-negotiable at OU. So, um, you know, if the value, uh, if Valai does move, on after the season might be a good bet for his successor to have Texas ties when you talk about next guy up perhaps perhaps at the cornerback spot there at Alabama of course you got two secondary coaches so it could be maybe you give Charles Kelly all the secondary Uh, you got some flexibility in terms of how you go about that if it comes down to it just get through the little game Alabama has next Monday night right also Oklahoma and Alabama-related, and that Todd Bates to Oklahoma, the former defensive end at Alabama, a longtime member of Dabo Sweeney's once-locked-in staff there at Clemson. Dabo taking some lefts and rights with his coaching staff. Now, of course, if you're Dabo Sweeney, you want to see assistant coaches go on to head coaching jobs. That's been the case for three of his assistants over the last couple of years. But this is at the assistant level, and I think it will involve – Uh, You know, a move up in title. I believe it's a co-defensive coordinator title that Bates could be looking at. And I'm sure there's a nice chunk of change that comes with that. Um, But Dabo finding himself in Nick Saban's shoes a little bit here. Because, again, 
that had been considered to be a strength of Dabo Sweeney's staff, the continuity and those guys all staying together. And boy, over the last season and a half or so, that has come apart a little bit for Dabo Sweeney. And uh, speaking of Nick Saban's shoes, it was 15 years ago on Monday that Nick Saban touched the ground. His shoes touched the ground at Tuscaloosa Regional Airport. I thought it might end up being a local holiday in the Tuscaloosa area, but I think city and county offices were actually open on Monday. So it hasn't happened as of yet. You Look, not just a generational hire when you talk about Nick Saban in Alabama. You're talking about a hire for all time, a historic hire with Alabama set to play for a national championship for the ninth time in 13 years under Nick Saban and the sixth out of its last seven years for the Crimson Tide. I've gotten this far. I didn't even ask you people, you folks, you good folks. Did you do a New Year's resolution? Are those things still around? I used to try to do them. I haven't been as good about doing them. I did do one this year. My New Year's resolution was just simply motion. I want to keep moving forward physically. I want to make sure in terms of fitness and exercise, I stay moving mentally. I want to keep it moving. I don't want to get bogged down, people. Maybe you have one. Maybe you have a New Year's resolution. Again, mine is just to kind of keep leaning forward both mentally and physically. Maybe your New Year's resolution was, you know what? I'm going to watch even more bowl games than I usually watch. And speaking of which, how about the consternation of play versus sit for games outside of the college football playoff? Now, for me, other than the college football playoff games, I look at bowl games as simply exhibition. So from my perspective, to each his own. Selfishly, I want all these guys to play. It makes for better content consumption where me, the viewer, me, the fan, me, the media member, is concerned. And I get for certain programs and players, they're far more defining some of these bowl games in terms of historical perspective from for some programs than they are, say, for an Alabama. Alabama winning the Citrus Bowl a couple of years ago, that that didn't make a ripple in terms of Alabama's history. But for say Ole Miss in the Sugar Bowl, that's a huge deal. And if you're Matt Corral and you've kind of led that charge to that point I could see where you would want to play in that game same for Oklahoma State did you hear Mike Gundy after Oklahoma State beat Notre Dame he called the Fiesta Bowl win over the Irish the biggest win in program history now here's what I think about at least a little bit of that for being honest about the mullet and it looks like he doesn't even really have the mullet anymore from what I could tell the other day Mike Gundy might have been taking a little bit of a dig at the rival Oklahoma Sooners. Maybe a little bit of a middle finger for Mike Gundy to an OU program and an OU athletic department that is moving on to the Southeastern Conference. Did you pick up some of that maybe? Did you think that was maybe part of what went into Mike Gundy's comments that the win over the Notre Dame fighting Irish in the Fiesta Bowl was the biggest win in program history. Yeah, that's kind of way I uh, I took some of that. And again, I think Matt Corral, unfortunately, goes out with the injury. Fortunately, doesn't look like it's severe. Doesn't look like it's going to impact his draft status in any way. I think he wanted to be a part of this historic moment for a program like Ole Miss. Now, I also think Matt Corral isn't a top five pick for the 2022 NFL draft. So from that standpoint, I also think playing made a lot of sense for him. Even Sam Howell, the quarterback at North Carolina. Sam Howell announced after Carolina lost to Carolina, North Carolina lost to South Carolina in the Duke's Mayo Bowl that um, you know he was headed to the NFL draft, but he still played in a bowl game, the status of the one in Charlotte, And I think he's in a similar boat as Matt Corral in terms of he's not a slam dunk first rounder for next April. And if you're not one of those guys, you probably need to make all the statements you can uh, in your college career before you make that jump. So, you know, and of course, it looks like my Jags will once again have the number one pick and there won't be a quarterback 
to drive up trade value for them because they've already got their quarterback in Trevor Lawrence. Trevor took it on the chin Sunday from Mac Jones and the New England Patriots, didn't he? So, you know, the Jags, unlike a year ago where there was a lot of value in that first pick because they needed their franchise quarterback and they still believe they've got him in Trevor Lawrence, this year without that type of quarterback in this draft, and there isn't. There isn't that kind of quarterback. I was talking with a NFL front office member here in the last week or so, and his point was the problem for the Jags is that Bryce Young isn't in this draft. So the Jags don't need a quarterback, so they would obviously be more than willing to trade back for a for a very nice bounty, uh, but there's really not that player. There's not that player, it doesn't appear right now, to drive up that value for April. I mean, your first pick in the 2022 NFL draft might be more along the lines of a guy you take, say, sixth overall in a lot of other drafts. I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau, really? Aiden Hutchinson, he's on a milk carton after the performance against Georgia in the Orange Bowl. I'll tell you somebody who could benefit from all this, though, especially with a strong performance on Monday night in Indianapolis, Evan Neal. Assuming Evan Neal does make that jump, he's been in sort of that top three, top four, top five neighborhood. A team like the Jaguars, they're going to need a tackle. They need a left tackle. I know they took a left tackle in the draft last year out of Stanford, and he started in place of Cam Robinson at New England on Sunday, but there's no guarantees with that situation. Evan Neal might end up benefiting uh, big time from that uncertainty as far as the top of the draft is concerned. But anyway, here's the way I think we should view non-college football playoff games. Look at them as if they're kind of like spring games, if spring games involve two teams instead of one. In other words, if teams could play other teams for their spring games, that's kind of what non-CFP bowl games would be. You know, kind of like Baylor Ole Miss was. Those type of games. And you get about the same number of practices leading up to a bowl game as you get in spring spring practice, right? Leading up to your spring games. And based on the attendance of some of these bowl games, you could basically let people in for nothing either way, it looks like. Boy, some rough uh, attendance numbers when you look around some of the bowl games this offseason. And I'm not anti-bowl guy either. I love it. And look at the television ratings. That's why these games exist to begin with. You don't even need to talk about attendance numbers because the ESPN ratings continue to do extremely well. And that's why these games are here. And, you know, here's the reality from the player's perspective, though. Where the NFL is concerned, there is probably a pool of 15 to 20 players who really have a decision to make about play or opt out. For others, with an emphasis on underclassmen who have that decision to make, it's going to be similar to the decision to stay in school or declare for the draft to begin with. In other words, some guys are going to take the advice of those around them, and probably more often than not, it's not it's not going to be the most prudent advice that they follow. And that's all of this is before we get into the transfer portal and its impact. A guy's missing games because they've already made their moves to their next stops, and so. You know, you look at the cornerback situation, even for a college football playoff team like Alabama, Marcus Banks opted out before the end of the regular season. And now you see Alabama playing a good bit with its third and fourth corner against Cincinnati with Kyrie Jackson stepping up and doing some good things. Now, you know, the perhaps the decision had already been made to go with Kool-Aid McKinstry in the case of Alabama and maybe to move on up Kyrie Jackson at that point when Marcus Banks made that decision to move on. And he has ultimately landed, it appears, at Mississippi State. But it does also illustrate how depth, even for college football playoff teams, could be impacted in the future. Hey, have you already made your plans for Indianapolis? Are you going? A lot of different ways to do it. And I'll say this, in terms of get-in prices for tickets, looks like that market has softened up here a little bit. 
I've seen on the secondary market, I don't know about you, some tickets in that $600 neighborhood, which isn't that bad. Um, I got to think weather in Indianapolis, and also you've got COVID concerns with this spike of Omicron uh, here in the last month or so, but get in prices in Indy looking to be right now, and we're about a week out still, uh, under $600. And getting into Indianapolis, not all that difficult. I know a lot of folks I've heard from said, man, these these flights into Indianapolis are insane if you have to fly. The good thing for both Georgia and Alabama, those fan bases, is that it's very drivable. So that isn't as much of a problem. But if you do need to fly, You've got options at surrounding airports like Louisville, an hour and 45 minutes to the south. I had looked at flights into Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. They were around $1,000 each round trip. Looked at Louisville, and they were around $250. So a nice discount uh, if you needed to fly and go into uh, Louisville, and you've got Airbnb options. You obviously have a lot of hotel options in the Indianapolis area, Uh, but it's accessible, I don't again, I don't think the weather, I don't think you're going to want to go to the Indianapolis Zoo or anything while you're in Indy. But um, chilly game day forecasted. But of course, you're going to be playing indoors for that one. Hey, wanted to get into something here on the podcast with Alabama Cincinnati. Probably won't spend too much time on it because we did this with instant analysis immediately following last Friday's game with the Bearcats. But Thought we'd sort of run through this thing positionally real quick, uh, just kind of get a second view, kind of a sec at second glance, uh, the performance against Cincinnati. We'll start at quarterback with Bryce Young, and I did a grades piece on this Saturday that you can still find at BamaOnline.com, and uh, for Bryce, it wasn't the prolific outing that we've grown accustomed to. Now, some of that was by design. Obviously, when Alabama comes out and runs the football like it did to start that game, kind of tells you what the plan is centering on, uh, especially if it's working, which it did. Alabama runs for 301 yards, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't a signature performance for Bryce Young. Three touchdown passes, but he did have the interception there uh, in the third quarter. A couple of Heisman-type plays. Uh, had the little uh, flip to Brian Robinson there late in the second quarter on the 94-yard touchdown drive that sort of evoked some recent memories from that win over Georgia in Atlanta. And, of course, closed out that drive with a strike to Ja'Cory Brooks for a touchdown Watching the game back again, it wasn't as if the people around Bryce always played at a high level. I'm talking about in terms of pass protection, especially on the edge and trying to deal with Majay Sanders, the Cincinnati defensive end who had five quarterback hurries in the game. He had a couple of three penalties flagged there on Chris Owens at the right tackle position. I'll tell you something else, too that you worry about a little bit, especially with John Mechie out. And we talked about that a lot. But when Bryce Young extends plays with different receivers in there, and even against Cincinnati, as you recall, you had a series where Jamison Williams was out of the game and dinged up a little bit. And so then you got Javon Baker, you've got Ja'Cory Brooks, uh, you've got Slade Bolden on the field together. And in those situations especially, but even when Jamison Williams is on the field, when Bryce Young looks to extend plays, are guys going to be connected enough with Bryce to be able to get open? Because he is going to continue to look up the field to try to make some plays. I thought that was a struggle for Alabama from a receiver's perspective. Nothing else you can really say about Brian Robinson's performance at the running back spot. 204 rushing yards. Trey Sanders did some really nice things as well. Career high 15 carries for 73 yards. You go for over 300. You got to give some credit certainly to that offensive line where the run game is concerned. Kind of odd that as effectively as Alabama ran the football in that game, it didn't really help Alabama in terms of pass protection. So, uh, that didn't really translate in that area. But you know, as far as the receivers go, more of a possession type of game for Jamison Williams and what we're used to seeing. I thought he had some big catches, though, converted some third downs. And even when he didn't convert one third down, it was the third and 14 play 
there in the first quarter where he catches it for 12 or so, and he sets it up where they can convert the fourth and two with Brian Robinson. And then his longest reception of the game uh, was a 20-yarder there in the second half that that kept that drive alive as well. It was Alabama's final touchdown drive of the game, kind of spanned the third and fourth quarters. And, uh, you know, working in place of, of John Mechie, you had Ja'Cory Brooks. As we said, you saw some J, uh, Javon Baker. Um, and the tight ends, you anticipated them maybe being a little bit more involved than they ultimately were, although Cameron Latou did find the end zone just a couple of catches between Jalil Billingsley and Cameron Latou. JoJo Earl, good to see him back on the field. Had a little bit of a problem there with a punt muff in the first half. Hell of a play by Kool-Aid McKinstry to get on that football and you know, allow Alabama, give Alabama the opportunity there late in the second quarter to even have a chance on that 94-yard drive and really an opportunity for Cincinnati to have a potentially game-changing takeaway there. But McKinstry heads up, gets on the football. Offensive line again, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, going to be kind of a wait-and-see situation with Emil Echior at right guard, although Nick Saban postgame made it sound as if anyway, Emil Echior, uh, a good chance he could be available for Georgia next Monday night. We'll see with Chris Owens. Uh, Seth McLaughlin in another start played solidly. J.C. Latham in relief of Emil Echior, I thought was a real uh, positive. You did have the pressure inside. It wasn't just all Myjay Sanders, but on Bryce Young's interception, you had interior pressure from Cincinnati defensive tackle Curtis Brooks, and we had previewed him heavily going into the game last Friday, and he was able to kind of use a little game there inside to – get a free run at Bryce Young. Bryce off his back foot, kind of floated one over the middle. So that preceded the takeaway. Um, And then when Chris Owens went out late, it was actually Amari Kite that checked in there at right tackle. So even from a depth perspective, there were a couple things that were, well, pretty revealing, I thought. Good to see C.J. Latham, excuse me, J.C. Latham at the end of his freshman year obviously advancing and developing to the point where they feel good enough about him in a big spot like that, even if it is guard, because I know a lot of folks are still thinking tackle for J.C. Latham, but just to be able to get into that mix because we've seen young guys that came to Alabama as tackles like Alex Leatherwood, uh, like Jedrick Wills, uh, that have worked inside like Evan Neal uh, initially before moving outside. On the defensive side of the ball, you know, it was another two-sack performance from Will Anderson, but I thought a couple of guys really may be undervalued in terms of how good they were in the game against Cincinnati, Fedarian Mathis being one of those. Uh, and then I would also say Brian Branch. And those guys, uh, Fedarian with a couple of tackles for loss, including a sack, a couple of pass breakups, really doing a good job getting his hands in the passing lanes. Uh, the front keyed a lot of Alabama success against the run. I thought DJ Dale early in the game with a sack in the second quarter uh, was big. It kind of got things going from a pass rush perspective. And then, of course, Alabama closed out that first half after the poor kickoff and the return by UC with a couple of sacks from its edge guys, Will Anderson and Dallas Turner. So, Linebackers, I thought, were fine. Henry Toa Toa, Christian Harris. Toa Toa, again, with one of the more undervalued plays of the game there in the first quarter when he breaks up a pass uh, that looked like it was headed to Alec Pierce for Cincinnati and a touchdown because he had gotten separation against Kool-Aid on that little inside route. Uh, But Toa Toa gets his hands into the passing lane and breaks that up. And then in the secondary, that's going to be – an ongoing storyline throughout the week, no doubt about it. You did see Jalen Armour Davis start at the one corner opposite of Kool-Aid McKinstry, but Jalen looked to be still not quite himself. He missed a tackle there early in the game that led to an explosive play. Uh, And then you saw Kyrie Jackson rotate in and sort of those three guys as the game moved along. And, you know, I still think safety play and the play of Brian Branch at the star position is – is right where you want it to be for this time of year. And I think also in terms of, you know, the kind of opponent, the opponent you have up next, because Georgia certainly likes to attack the middle of the field. And I think even after 
the interception issues that um, that Stetson Bennett has had really in both of his starts against Alabama, one last year and then one in Atlanta, I think Georgia's still going to go there, still going to go to the middle of the field, still going to try to attack Brian Branch with uh, Brock Bowers. And as much as anything from that first game, I think tackling, tackling just needs to be better. Because when Alabama made tackles, and even when Alabama got penalized for some things on the back end, pass interference, holding, whatever, it at least made Georgia play red zone offense. And I think that's going to be key next Monday night is can Alabama, yeah, might give up some yards, but as you saw with Georgia against Michigan with the explosive plays, you have to make Georgia play red zone offense. You have to make Stetson Bennett show he can get that team into the end zone from the 20 and in. So that'll be big for the Georgia game. Special teams against Cincinnati, not very good. Did get a couple of field goals from Will Riker. That was a positive. James Burnup averaged 44 yards per punt, just punted twice. McKinstry's fumble recovery of Earl's muff was very big there in the second quarter. And I thought once Slade Bolden sort of took that over, ball security was a positive. But again, you had a missed field goal by Riker that, Started with a snap that wasn't bad, but it was into Burnup's body enough that it took away the time that he typically would have to get the spot exactly the way he would want. In other words, with the laces out, instead, he sort of hurries it, puts it down with the laces facing Will Reichard, and Reichard ends up pulling it left. Yeah, Jamison Williams getting drilled on a kickoff return. That was scary for Alabama fans. Had a couple of penalties on um, on Alabama special teams. And then, again, I said it after the game. I've written about it. It was the kickoff by Reichard there late in the second quarter after Alabama had taken the 17-3 to lead. And you go directional across the field from the left hash and – Tyler Scott runs it out 40 yards, and now you're having to play your ass off on defense to get to the locker room, and Cincinnati's getting the ball to come out to start the second half. So just some uh, second-glance thoughts on Alabama-Cincinnati, and with that now, you start looking fully ahead to the Georgia Bulldogs and all the narratives. Man, the narratives now. After Alabama 41-24, In the ATL, we are now hearing that actually Alabama was desperate and Georgia already knew it was in the college football playoffs, so there really wasn't much on the line for the Georgia Bulldogs. Are you telling me that going into a game against a team that has beaten you six straight times with most of those coming right in your backyard, whether we're talking about Atlanta, whether we're talking about Athens, That doesn't motivate you? And by the way, you're playing for the Southeastern Conference Championship. You know? This isn't the the Gulf South Conference we're talking about here. And I love the Gulf South Conference, man. You want to talk about the SEC, a D2? Okay. GSC, baby. I get it. But come on. Come on with the motivational part of it. Yes, Alabama was very focused. Yes, Alabama was motivated by being the underdog And it wasn't just that Alabama was the underdog, as you might recall. It was that more than a few folks out there whose opinions are widely distributed didn't just think Georgia was going to win the game in Atlanta. There was so much talk about this being a blowout. Alabama was not going to be able to compete. So certainly there was motivation for Alabama. From that perspective. But where was all that motivation when Georgia got out to a 10 nothing lead? You know, the game was about a month ago. And it's amazing how revisionist history can take hold on a game played just a month ago. And how we're told now, you would think anyway, that Alabama just from the start came out, blew the doors off of Georgia. Georgia just wasn't into it. And so that's kind of how it went. Georgia was up 10 nothing. Georgia looked plenty motivated. To me, up 10-0 in front of a crowd that was tilted in the Bulldogs' favor. And Alabama, as it has done throughout this seven-game win streak now over Georgia, was composed. 
didn't lose its cool, stayed the course, and proceeded to go on a 38-7 run. That's how I remember the game. Maybe I just got it all wrong. You know, Georgia just wasn't motivated. Alabama, think about it this way. Alabama snuck up on Georgia. <laughs> think about that. Think about how dumb that sounds. Alabama had won six straight over Georgia. Alabama is the premier, premier program in college football. You're playing for the SEC championship. You're playing for a perfect season if you're Georgia. And you just couldn't, you couldn't find the gas? Come on. I mean, it wasn't like Georgia was coming off of 96 Nebraska the previous week either, okay? Alabama was coming off a triple overtime game against Auburn on the road. Whereas Georgia had it in cruise control by the second quarter against Georgia Tech right up the street from Athens. Uh, And we're going to still hear it, though. We're going to still hear it. Here's something else to consider, too. And I've said this on multiple occasions. I said it last year after the debacle defensively in Oxford. Alabama won that game, what, 63-48 to against Ole Miss? And all the Alabama fans, because Georgia was up next. And it's just, this is going to be, and my whole thing in the lead-up to that Georgia game was different week, different style of play. And Georgia offensively ain't Ole Miss or Jeff Levy. Arc Lane Kiffin, there's not going to be tempo, you know. There's not going to be that type of stuff that you get from Lane Kiffin and specifically Jeff Lebby. And sure enough, Alabama looked like a different defense because styles make fights. And stylistically, you know, Alabama's built in a way where it can play either way. It can play wide open if you want to, but it is very comfortable in playing a style of game that really Georgia has to play. Georgia is not at a point yet as a program where it can do it either way like Alabama can. Not against a team like Alabama anyway. And so it starts with the Alabama offensive line and that Georgia front seven. Now Georgia's pass rush is going to have to be a lot better this time around. And we can talk about Mechie, and I'm, I'm on that side of it with John Mechie's absence being critical for Alabama. But if Georgia doesn't get more pass rush this time around yeah Ja'Cory Brooks can get open against this Georgia secondary Trayshawn Holden Jovan Javon Baker they can all get open this isn't Georgia secondary even from a year ago as we saw the first time around Slade Bolden can get open against this secondary the tight ends can get open so that's where it's going to start as much as anything you know and I think Alabama defensively is built in a way and playing in a way right now where it matches up pretty well with Georgia. And I'm talking about specifically the safety and sub-package guys. DeMarco Hellams, Jordan Battle, both had huge games against Georgia in round one. They're going to need to do it again. Brian Branch, I thought, played well. I know you look at Brock Bowers' numbers from that game, you go, man, he lit people up. Well, yeah, Brock Bowers had a hell of a game. But it wasn't easy. If you saw Brock Bowers coming off the field there in the fourth quarter after his drop on fourth down, that dude had been through it. They made Brock Bowers earn it, and he did. Give him all the credit in the world. But can Georgia on the outside hurt Alabama? And I'm talking about those corners, McKinstry. I'm talking about Jackson. I'm talking about perhaps Armour Davis, you know, George Pickens. Is he going to run more than one or two routes in this game? Maybe he will. Lad McConkey, speed guy, can get deep against man coverage, especially if you get him against a slot corner. Jermaine Burton, you saw it against Michigan. He can hit you for some explosives. You can formation in a way if you're Georgia where you get James Cook lined up on maybe a linebacker like the dogs did in Tuscaloosa in 2020. Now, Georgia is good enough Georgia is plenty good enough to win this game. But I think the biggest question is going to be is when the kind of adversity that typically hits teams in a game like this comes about, will they be able to handle it? Because they haven't. As much as anything in this seven-game losing streak to Alabama, the last four games in this series, 
Georgia's led. And I want to say in each of those games, Georgia has led by double figures. Go back to the 2012 game in the SEC championship in Atlanta. Same type of thing. And Alabama didn't freak. Alabama didn't lose its composure. Alabama stayed focused. And Alabama answered the bell. And then when it started to go the other way, Georgia didn't really have an answer for six for that. Georgia hasn't handled success very well in this seven-game losing streak to Alabama. And it certainly hasn't held up very well once things have started to go Alabama's way. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk some Under Armour All-American game from down in Orlando on Sunday. Being a Jags fan, one of the benefits of that is we get put away so early in our games by the Patriots here most recently that I was able to just flip it over and really watch the Under Armour All-American game in its entirety. I'll talk about some of Alabama's signees that took part in that game. We'll also get into some Alabama men's basketball talk when the Bama Online Podcast returns right after this. Hey, I've told you uh, several times now, home field apparel, you need to get there. You need to get there ASAP if you haven't already. You probably already have. And if you have, undoubtedly, you have taken advantage of that first-time purchase code of Bama247. If you haven't, that first purchase at Home Field Apparel, when you get to checkout, you're going to put in Bama247. You're going to get 15% off that first order. And man, all the gear is just so great, so fun. You know, a lot of times with gear, you go to the stadium, you go to the sports bar, you go to the tailgate, and you look around and there's like seven people with maybe the same hoodie on or maybe the same t-shirt or the same sweatshirt. Not so much when you deal with home field apparel. Very unique Alabama gear. Great variety of designs where the angry elephant, the angry Big Al, the fun Big Al, you're going to find all of that at Home Field Apparel. Go to homefieldapparel.com right now. Check out all the great gear. It is supremely constructed, the gear, the clothing. Uh, It is comfortable, comfortable stuff. You're going to love it. Home Field Apparel. 15% off that first purchase at homefieldapparel.com when you enter Bama247 at checkout. Back with more of the Bama Online Podcast on a Tuesday, January the 4th, 2022. Said we'd get into some of the Under Armour All-American game from over the weekend. You know, big week down there for Tyler Booker, the four-star offensive lineman from IMG Signed with the Crimson Tide a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, watching Tyler Booker's high school tape, pretty much all of it at tackle down there at IMG. And I thought he was a really solid tackle. But I really like Tyler Booker on Sunday working at the guard position for team icons, working at left guard. And he saw some of Walter Nolan, the number one defensive line prospect, maybe the number one overall prospect for the class of 2022 more than held his own he can play tackle he can play guard I think he's still better suited for either guard or right tackle Uh, he showed you some power in the game on Sunday fourth and one play there in the first quarter and uh, he helps pave the way for a conversion there and again some of his best work came against Walter Nolan team icons ran behind Tyler Booker for a touchdown there late in the first quarter you know and some other guys that we'll get into as well Sticking with team icons, you saw Sean Murphy, the four-star linebacker from the state of Virginia, right up there in the D.C. area. He worked inside, which you anticipated, but I thought it was interesting with Sean Murphy that it looked like he was pretty much running the show, and he didn't really come off the field during the course of that game on Sunday. He's an every-down guy, Sean Murphy is, and I think you can he's interchangeable, and a lot of that is translate. You can translate that to Alabama between the mic and the will, Uh, but there is certainly a level of trust that is put into guys uh, to run the show, and Sean Murphy looked like he was pretty comfortable with all that. Also, Jihad Campbell uh, working inside for Team Icons, and we had heard reports from down in Central Florida throughout the week that this is a guy that's looked good whether you bring him on the pass rush, whether you play him inside. 
He's got that size at 6'3 or so and 215 pounds. It's it's easy to envision him as a cross trainer at Alabama, a guy that where you need him most, that's where you stick him. At the same time, you want to put him in a place where he has that time to develop uh, and, and get to a you know a star type level, whether it's inside or outside. And again, I think package to package, though, you might be able to do some things with Campbell to move him around between inside and outside. Traquan Fagans from Thompson High School, thought he did some nice things. Uh, He was with uh, Team Legends, so he was on the other side from Jihad Campbell, Sean Murphy, and Tyler Booker, but I've heard a lot of things about Traquan Fagans in terms of where his future position might be at the college level. He played corner in the game on Sunday, thought he did some good things, Uh, had a pass breakup there on a slant in the second quarter to force a field goal. Uh, Maybe more of a boundary corner type. Uh, Sort of stumbled out of his break one time a little bit, but he had a nice recovery to come back and break up a deep ball that was intended for Texas A&M signee Chris Marshall there in the fourth quarter. So I was pretty impressed with Traquan Fagans. Again, a guy who is projectable between corner, safety, the sub-package roles, uh, you get it when you watch Traquan Fagans. Long, long. Could be a corner. I can see Traquan Fagans being, if he is a corner, more of a Josh Job type corner, physical type guy, um, but certainly a guy that could play a number of different positions. Aaron Anderson, the wide receiver signee out of New Orleans for Alabama, was with Team Legends in the game. He ran him a nice double move there in the second quarter, but... Uh, little bit of a miscommunication between himself and the quarterback at the time, A.J. Swan, who was headed to Vanderbilt. Swan threw the hitch, and it looked like Aaron Anderson was going to be deep open on the deep ball, but uh, a little bit of uh, a breakdown in communication there. Anderson came back in the fourth quarter, ran a little stop and go, another double move. And this one went for 39 yards and a catch. It looked like he actually scored on the play, rolled over the defender at the goal line, never touched the ground, flipped into the end zone, but he was ruled down at the one. But a couple of encouraging things from Aaron Anderson, not the biggest receiver in the world, as you know, 5'8", 5'9", but can be a real problem in the slot and also as a returner. I think uh, that's where you're going to see some some good stuff from Aaron Anderson as well and just getting him the ball in the quick game and space and sort of letting him do his thing. Shaz Preston also uh, in the game working for Team Icon. Saw him a lot in the first half. Uh, looked like he was working more in the slot for Team Icons. Uh, Jaheim Otis, the defensive lineman, uh, also with Team Icons. Saw more of Big Jaheim in the second half, he actually got some pressure on the quarterback. It drew a laugh or two from the broadcast crew because he is, what, 6'4", 370 pounds, just a massive individual, but he showed some nice mobility. Look, it wasn't Jaheim Otis's type of game, all right, all-star game. It's like being a rebounder and a shot blocker in the NBA all-star game. It's not a not a game for those guys, but Jaheim still managed to flash uh, even in a game where, look, there weren't going to be a lot of uh, you know, powers and zone runs and split zones and things like that, uh, saw some decent things from Jaheim Otis. Also, Jeremiah Alexander, the five-star edge from Thompson High School, he was with Team Legends. Fourth quarter, he helped out on a tackle for a loss on Georgia running back signee Bronson Robinson. So a little bit of uh, production from Jeremiah Alexander. And then Emmanuel Henderson, I wanted to note too, the athlete signee from down in South Alabama. And Emmanuel showed some nice bursts there in the fourth quarter. Didn't really see him before that all that much, but in the fourth quarter, uh, 20-yard run on a little bit of a delay play there. And uh, that speed showed up, the big playability. Again, different kind of build maybe for an Alabama back in that 6'1", 180, 185-pound range, long, uh, lean right now. That'll certainly change as he gets more involved with Dr. Matt Ray and uh, David Ballou and the nutrition staff. His body will take on a little bit of a different look as well with on, without losing speed, perhaps gaining it. So, That was some good stuff, and now you're going to have the All-American Bowl coming up 
in San Antonio this weekend. You'll see a lot of coverage from 24-7 Sports. Ty Simpson, the Alabama quarterback signee. Uh, you're going to see, along with some other guys, Isaiah Bond, the four-star athlete out of Buford High School over in the Atlanta area. So you're going to want to stay tuned to BamaOnline.com for that coverage of the All-American Bowl in San Antonio coming up here in the next few days. Hey, as we get out of here, I wanted to hit on some Alabama men's basketball as well. Men's hoops was off over the weekend. Of course, a thrilling come-from-behind win over Tennessee midweek last week, the Crimson Tide Down six with about six to go, gets it done. Up next, the Florida Gators on Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Central, ESPN2. A chance for a 2-0 week on the road if Alabama can take care of business first and foremost at Florida Wednesday because on Saturday you're looking at Missouri. Missouri, one of the worst teams in the Southeastern Conference this season. So those would be golden to get a couple of road wins perhaps this week. And, yeah, unfortunately – You've had pauses across college basketball with the COVID wrecking havoc on the schedule. Now, the last we spoke, uh, we haven't really, we weren't really able to talk much about that win over Tennessee. We previewed it a pretty good bit, but hard fought 73 68 win. Again, down six with six to go. Collective effort down the stretch. The stars came out late for Alabama. Keon Ellis, Javon Quinterly. Um, Jaden Shackelford, you got a big three from Keon Ellis to sort of start that thing as far as the comeback is concerned. And then Gary with a big offensive board and a putback, uh, that really helped Alabama get to a position of being able to overtake a Vols team that was playing without a couple of its best players. Shackelford with a big three, um, and then a two, and then Keon hits the big three to make it. 70 to 68 Alabama. And how about Noah Gurley, man? Came off the bench for a 20 and 10. Nate Oates kind of called a shot with Noah Gurley before that Tennessee game. Said, look, I really believe Noah Gurley's about to find his game and really get going once SEC play starts. And it absolutely uh, went that way for Noah Gurley in Alabama in that win over Tennessee. And again, so. Florida up next. This is a Florida team. Man, you talk about transfer heavy. You talk about the transfer portal. The top seven players in Florida's rotation are all transfers, four-year transfers, not junior college transfers. Top seven guys in points and minutes, all transfers. Myron Jones, you might recall, if you're Alabama-based. Myron Jones is a Penn State transfer who actually played high school basketball in the Birmingham area at Huffman before moving to the state of Georgia for his senior year. Um, And Myron Jones, actually, he was in COVID protocol for Florida's final pre-conference game. Florida won handily over Stony Brook before the Christmas holiday. The Gators were set to come back, open SEC play at Ole Miss, but following Jones's situation, the program went on pause. So the Rebels, instead of hosting Florida, Florida will now host Alabama for the Gators' SEC opener on Wednesday night. Now, both these teams, Alabama and Florida, like to get up the three-point shot. Alabama averaging just under 33-point attempts per game. The Gators checking in at around 25 threes attempted per contest. I think you're going to see Florida want to get Alabama into a situation of having to make contested twos with Colin Castleton, the post at six foot eleven for Florida, one of those transfers from Michigan. Colin Castleton on the back end of that defense defending the rim for the Gators. Castleton will present the type of challenge that Alabama thought it was going to get from John Fulkerson midweek from the Vols. Fulkerson, of course, along with Kennedy Chandler, both those guys were out for the matchup with the Crimson Tide at Coleman Coliseum. Castleton's averaging close to a double-double per game, 14.8 points, 9.3 rebounds. He has five double-doubles and 12 starts this season. He's also blocked shots, three or more blocked shots in five games this season. So a guy to keep an eye on for sure. He had a pretty good game in Tuscaloosa last year, although James Rojas came off the bench to really help out 
Alabama in terms of the backboards and just the paint in general. Of course, Alabama doesn't have that luxury this time around. Uh, James Rojas coming back still from the injury he sustained back in the preseason. Bench points in last year's meeting in Tuscaloosa was a real thing. Alabama got 36 points from Rojas. Alex Reese also helping out. And then Keon Ellis in his role a year ago coming off the bench for the most part was a part of that as Alabama outscored Florida's reserves by 10 in an 86-71 win over the Gators. Now, look, Exact Tech, the O-Dome, whatever you refer to it as these days down in Gainesville, been a little bit of a house of horrors from time to time. Well, a good bit of the time, as I recall it anyway, where Alabama making a visit down to UF is concerned. Just two years ago, first season under Nate Oates, you probably have tried to forget that game, the Crimson Tide, with a five-point lead on the road with 29 seconds left and couldn't get home. Go on to lose to the Gators in that one, the last trip to UF, 104-98 to in double overtime. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We're going to keep it positive as much as possible. In fact, we're going to wrap it up for a Tuesday edition of the Bama Online Podcast. We thank you once again for joining us here on the podcast. We certainly hope you'll continue to hang out with us They're at BamaOnline.com, the roundtable, the premium message board of choice for Alabama Crimson Tide fans around the globe. Hey, if you haven't already, how about a subscription to this here podcast? Simple, easy as a click or two. And if you'd leave us a rating and a review while you're there, we would greatly appreciate that. Anywhere you find podcasts, anywhere you consume podcasts, you're going to find the Bama Online Podcast. Thanks again for joining us here on the show. Take care, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.